0: Thank you for joining ReachMD XM-157 for this month's special series, Spotlight on Neurology and Psychiatry.
1: How do you tell a child he may never play baseball? How do you help a family whose dreams have been suddenly shattered by an unexpected medical diagnosis? You're listening to ReachMD XM-157, a channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Bill Rutenberg, your host, and with me today is Dr. Jane Ness. Dr. Ness is an associate professor of pediatrics with joint appointments in neurology and neurobiology at the Children's Hospital of Alabama in Birmingham. Dr. Ness is the director of the Center for Pediatric Onset Demyelinating Disease and an associate scientist at the Civitan Research Center and the Center for Glial Biology and Medicine. Today we're discussing special problems of children and their families coping with pediatric multiple sclerosis. Welcome, Dr. Ness and Thanks for joining us at the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm a practicing pediatrician, and I know for me the hardest thing to do is deliver bad news. Telling parents that their child has a demyelinating disease or multiple sclerosis, I mean, has to be devastating. What do you say to them, and what's your approach?
0: Often, it's a pathway that we're following. But, you know, first we've had one episode that was loss of vision in one eye loss of sensation on one side of the face or one side of the body, weakness on one side of the body, sometimes bowel or bladder difficulties, sometimes persistent dizziness or difficulty walking. And we've had that first episode to lay the groundwork. And, we, and I always show them the MRI and say, this is what I'm worried about. So then, and then we have to wait and see how things are going to go. And typically if we repeat the MRI, a couple of months later, usually three months later, if there's new spots, I say, you know, this looks like this is going to be MS. In the meantime, we've done a spinal tap to get a little bit more data on, you know, which, you know, is it the MS profile. Does that show an elevated IgG index? Does that uh, show oligoclonal bands? So the family has been prepared along the way that, yeah, this could be MS, but, uh, You know, the thing is is that MS, unlike many of the other diseases that I treat, I also take care of lots of kids with cerebral palsy, with horrible brain trauma. And, you know, those kids I can't fix. These kids, we have something to offer. So actually, it's yes, this is MS, and a lot of times it's, yeah, they're sad, but, oh, this is what explains the problems we've been having. And so, if anything, there's often a sense of relief. Okay, now we have an explanation, and now we can move on. And fight this disease. And there's treatment out there. The future is very bright. The treatment right now are four different types of medications. Unfortunately, they're all available only as shots. Although oral medications are being tested right now. But we can actually offer our families a lot of hope. I think the most common question my patients have is, well, am I going to die? And, you know, we always reassure them they're going to live just as long as we would expect their brothers or sisters to live.
1: That's true. Oh, that's really fascinating. That's wonderful.
0: It's interesting. I ask my family, when you hear MS, what do you think about And I have a lot of African-American kids in my practice. They all think about Montel, really positive and upbeat. And so they have actually a pretty positive view of MS.
1: And that's Montel Williams, correct?
0: Yes, thank you for clarifying. And where a lot of times the Caucasian families will often they'll have known someone who's, you know, in a wheelchair or something like that. Well, these are people who often have, have had MS for years. Treatments weren't available when they were diagnosed. And we can really tell these kids that, you know, yeah, we don't know what the future is for sure. But with new treatments out there, we'll be aggressive and follow this. But, you know, you should be able to do whatever you want to do. We have kids who are now young adults. One is attending Harvard University. One is graduating from medical school this year and wants to be a pediatrician herself. We've got a lot of students who are in college doing well. The flip side is we have kids who used to be honors classes, AC they're really struggling. I have more high school dropouts in my group of patients with MS compared to say my group of patients with epilepsy. So I think there's something that we really have got to be aware of that there are some challenges to having MS and getting through school and getting through life and we don't want to sugarcoat it but it can be done.
1: The cognitive issues obviously have to be a major concern to parents. Are there any predictive factors? that the MRI changes correlate with neuropsychological, neurophysiologic studies?
0: The data is so limited right now. In children, we just don't know. There's a few studies out from Stony Brook Medical School, from Brenda Banwell's group in Toronto, sick kids, suggesting that kids with MS and kids who have MS for a longer period of time do suffer some cognitive decline. But these are limited studies, only a handful of patients. We're doing neuropsychological testing now on all our kids and what we have seen in the first fifteen or so kids is their IQs intact, but they're just not as efficient. It takes them a little bit longer to do things. We're now in the process of now retesting these kids a couple of years later and We'll see what the results show, but anecdotally, if you ask, you know, what were your grades like a couple years ago? They were doing well, and now they're not doing so well. And we have not yet seen a clear correlation with MRI. There's nothing been published in kids looking at, gosh, is it the MRI, or is there something that up front that you can predict who's going to do badly? My sense is the kids with worse MRIs do more poorly, but it's not 100%. I think there's a lot of other factors that play into
1: this. I'd like to welcome those who are just joining us. You're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on Reach MD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Bill Rutenberg, and I'm speaking with Dr. Jane Ness. We're discussing the special problems of children and families coping with pediatric multiple sclerosis. You've been designated or the center has been designated a center of excellence. Does that imply that you're also doing a multimodal approach? Do you do PT, OT, speech therapy with these children? What all is involved and what can you offer them as assistance and other mechanisms by which to maintain function and have a bright outcome?
0: We're very fortunate, and with our funding from the National Multiple Sclerosis Society of the Pediatric MS Center of Excellence, to have access to additional resources for our patients, our kids when they come to clinic end up spending at least half a day there. In addition to seeing myself from pediatric neurology, they often see an adult neurologist, either Dr. Karam Bashir or Dr. John Rinker, adult neurologist at the UAB MS Center. And that's very helpful, especially for kids when we're not quite sure what's going on with them, You know, if they really have MS or not, or if they have real complications with their MS. All of our kids, or we try to get all of our kids to see our child psychiatrist, Dr. Sam Rubin, pediatric neuropsychologist, Dr. Joe Ackerson. We also have PT, OT. We have a nurse practitioner. We also have ties with neuro rehab, urology, and then those kids get referred to those services as needed. But within the, the clinic day, they're going to see five or six of us. We also have a school psychologist, Lori Lou smith and she and my nurse, Yolanda Harris often go out to schools and meet with the school staff to talk to schools about one of our patients who has MS and devise an educational plan that will meet that child's needs.
1: Another issue that has to be overwhelming to families is the economic impact. How good is insurance coverage and what's available to parents and families as resources?
0: This is a huge battle and actually not so much for our kids that are 18 and under because actually 95% of kids in Alabama come under some form of insurance and, and Children's Hospital here is great at making sure we figure out a way to get these kids onto insurance. We have a very good S-CHIP program here in the state. It's called All Kids. And one way or another, I don't know how our social workers do it, but get it most for kids onto some form of insurance. It's been enormously successful for us, but the challenge comes, and we're facing this with a number of kids, of what happens when they age out of all kids or Medicaid, and they've been on their disease modifying therapy, they've been on their shots, and they look great. They're not disabled. So they don't necessarily qualify for SSI and the Medicaid benefits that would come with it. So this has been the biggest challenge. This is why we really push education with our kids is that, you know, we want them to get a job, you know, get training, get a job, get a W-2. And we talk to them about, you know, your job options are not going to be working at a mom-and-pop shop with limited benefits you need to work in a bigger corporation as you can get with group benefits that being said the drug companies have actually been really generous in providing assistance for disease modifying therapies and so that is something that we can always go to there's some each company's got their qualifications it's not perfect it's limited as well but usually we're able to maintain our patients on their disease modifying therapy as they transition to adulthood
1: i mean it sounds so obviously discriminatory that they're saying because you don't have symptoms, you don't qualify, but you still have your underlying disease. Is anybody working on the political level, or what would you say to the candidates? If they came to you and said, Dr. Ness, I want a plank for you from my health care platform, what would you tell them that we need now?
0: That is actually something we are working with politically, and, and with people at the state Medicaid office and at the state disability office, it's much cheaper in the long run To keep young adults with chronic diseases healthy, certainly for multiple sclerosis, but the same could be said for epilepsy and maintaining drug coverage for that if it's necessary. Some of our children with, you know, congenital heart disease, cystic fibrosis, it's much cheaper in the long run to provide some, you know, preventive care, even if it's more expensive than it is for the typical kid. A couple of hospitalizations or lifelong disability, and you've wiped out any savings you might have had by denying coverage up front.
1: I'd like to welcome those who are just joining. Joining us. You're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on REACH MD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Bill Rutenberg, and I'm speaking with Dr. Jane Ness. We're discussing the special problems of children and families coping with pediatric multiple sclerosis. Support groups have to be very important as well. Are there specific groups that you know of or that parents could turn to, or is this done individually, say, by the individual centers?
0: Within our own center, we have small, you know, we don't have a huge number of kids that come to clinic every time. There's some interaction between our patients at clinic, but the National MS Society has been great for providing resources for children and families with MS. There's now a 800 number for kids with MS. It's actually a one 866 kids WMS or one eight six six five four three seven nine six seven. There's also our local chapter has been great about working with us, and they do have, although not anything specific for kids, they ha- for kids with MS they have a children's camp for children whose parents have MS as well as kids with MS. Some of our patients have participated in that. There's also camps that have been done nationwide. For example, the National Pediatric MS Center at Stony Brook has founded one of the early teen adventure camps. There is a really excellent handbook for children and teens with MS. There's now an online publication. All of this is available for the National MS Society, and so it's been a wonderful resource, as, as well as our own groups of uh, the pediatric MS centers across the country. You know, we've gotten together and getting putting materials together so that we're not reinventing the wheel. I think the big thing is doing collaboration. Our, our groups are at ourselves in the, the UAB. We're in the South, the only group in the South. But there is, as well as the National MS Center at Stony Brook. There's also the Mayo Clinic in Rochester. There's a pediatric MS Center at Jacobs Neurologic Institute in Buffalo.
1: Is there a central way of getting that information if somebody, if a parent wanted to find one of the national centers or is there a way they can contact you?
0: They go to the National MS Society website which I usually want to go is www.nmss.org and, and hit Pediatric MS. There is a link to that. Then they'll find all these
1: resources. Well, that's great. And then I'd like to thank Dr. Jane Ness, who's been my guest, and we've been discussing coping with pediatric multiple sclerosis. I'm Dr. Bill Rutenberg. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. We welcome your comments and questions. Please visit us at reachmd.com to access our entire program library and to explore our on-demand and podcast features. I wish you good day and good health.
0: Thank you for listening to this month's special series, Spotlight on Neurology and Psychiatry, on ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals.